0: From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country
1: today.
2: Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome
0: to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Eric McTran and Eric Hurtado of Fireclay Cellars in Siler City, North Carolina.
2: Eric and Eric talked to us about how Fireclay Cellars got started, some of the struggles they deal with with growing grapes, and how they embrace an assortment of winemaking styles to make the most of their climate. One note about this episode, we were recording in their tasting room during business hours, so you may hear a few customers from
0: time to time. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they continue through the journey in the next chapter of the history of wine.
2: This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can find out more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org.
0: So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So we're here today with Eric and Eric at Fireclay Cellars in Siler City, North yep. Carolina, for an episode of Cork Talk. Welcome to Cork Talk.
3: Thank you. Appreciate it. Happy to be here.
0: So we'll start with Eric number one. So introduce yourself, <laughs> tell folks who you are and, and what you do here at Fireclay. All
1: right. Uh, well, my name is Eric. I do pretty much everything that needs to be done. I'm a pretty small family winery. So... Uh, from mowing the lawns, growing the grapes, making the wine, everything you can think of, sometimes doing the tasting bar, doing events, doing podcasts. <laughs> put that on the resume. Yeah, put that on the resume. Uh, it's always funny when people come here and you know, usually I'm outside with like a full sun hoodie on and everything and come and just drink water and not wine because I'm so dehydrated. So, that's usually when I, like If you ever want to talk to me, I'm usually like, out in the vines. That's where I prefer to be. That's where we ran into today. We were driving in, and yep. we had that sun heavy Yeah, like, oh, there's Eric. There <laughs> you go.
0: You got to if you're out there, though. Don't yeah. want to get sunburned.
3: Yeah. And I'm uh, Eric number two, also known as Other Eric. Uh, but I just assist with whatever needs to be done. I've uh, been making wine for six years, wine, mead, and beer. Um, it was a fun experience, actually, coming out to Fireclay uh, when I was doing a Chapel Hill mead project met the family, quickly saw the vineyard and had to know who these people were and first introduced to Andre and he was like, oh, you need to meet my son Eric. I was like, oh, funny. That's great. Uh, two years later, we ended up uh, working together, but pretty much managing the cellar, doing wholesale, doing a little bit of uh, tasting room and uh, whatever and whatever I can do around the vineyard.
1: I remember, I remember first meeting you. My, my dad met you. He's <laughs> like, I met this guy here today, and he makes mead, and he's he's gonna come help harvest, you know. And I'm always so skeptical. It's like ah, well, you know, we like start at 6 a.m. and all those, and like oh, this guy, you know, like oh, he's like another like kind of like me, you know. And but it was great. Like I met you today, and I was like ah, oh, you know. I expected him to be like way older, and I was like, "This is great. You work. It was it was awesome. It's perfect. Like it was beautiful." So a little five foot five kid comes walking
3: in. <laughs> like, are you old enough to be? <laughs> it, t- it took a while to connect the
1: dots because I was like, you know, I don't know why I expected a meat maker to be like have a beard and old. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Those are the territory, I guess. Right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I love to bring in those stereotypes. <laughs>
0: So how did Fireclay get started?
1: Oh, man. So I guess I'll try to make a long story slightly shorter, but uh, my grandfather always made wine. And when my parents moved here maybe 40 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, they started growing grapes in the backyard. They grew muscadines. Uh, My grandfather eventually passed away. And so when I was 13 or 14, I started taking care of the muscadines in the backyard and, like, pruning them and everything like that. And then... um, when I finished college, I was like, ah, like, I really love outdoors. I love taking care of, like, grapes. It was really fun. And I wanted to have a place where I could, like, hey, uh, my dad and I, my dad also grew up on a farm, so that helped. And we had a lot of farm equipment. And I was like, hey, we should have this, like, muscadine farm. Maybe we should sell, like, some fresh muscadines. And that was about the time when all these wineries were coming into play. I was like, oh, well, actually, there's like other wine in North Carolina, we can like make wine, we love wine, and we started going around visiting all these wineries, Uh, I remember you guys were starting to come around then, and uh, that was awesome, so, I was like, oh, you can make some really good wine in North Carolina, so. We looked for land, and we did have the intentions of growing grapes here. So I tried to find, like, you know, I was out here digging holes with a shovel and the realtors. was like, what is this kid doing? <laughs> <laughs> I was digging holes. I was like, I got to make sure the drainage is good. Like, what's the soil like? And it was all on, like, a hill. and uh, And then we started growing. We started with, like, two, three acres, and then we sold grapes. And then we made grape wine over at Windsor Run. And... And then slowly built the place and then started making one here in 2018. Very cool. So now, where did the name Fireclay come from? I named it after the soil, because uh, it's like Fireclay. Uh, I also joke because I name it after all the fire amps. <laughs> that's like, that's my, you know, that And, I, and people used to do like, uh, they used to shoot shotguns out here. And so I used to every once in a while I'd find like a shotgun shell. So like, that's why I call it clay as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's still kind of a joke. It books in on many levels,
1: right? Yeah, mostly the land and the soy. I wanted something that had something to do with, like, the vineyard, you know.
3: Seeing so The Fire Ant Red will come out in play. Yeah, yeah that's very true. <laughs> I just have to
1: convince my mom that Fire Ant's a good, you know, wine name. It's a full name. If you can pass the TTB as well, so. yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Good luck with that.
0: Mom might be easier. <laughs> <laughs> she seems reasonable. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, she's pretty reasonable.
0: So, what was the initial planting of, of grapes
1: then? Oh wow, I I actually planted some Chardonnay. These are the grapes. I'm going to name all the grapes I pulled up. <laughs> all the grapes I pulled up. I pulled up Chardonnay. I pulled up Niagara. I pulled up Saval. I pulled up Merlot. And I pulled up, I had Syrah, I up Syrah. And then I basically, tremanette and
4: Chardonnay were the
1: main whites that just did really well here over like a couple years. And I needed something that was more disease resistant for my style of farming. So those are the two main whites. And then the Cab Franc lasted a long time. The not does really well here. Cab Sav. Uh, but now we have a whole bunch of other new varieties as well. I don't know if you make out with everything. <laughs> yeah, sure. I well. uh, sure went out. <laughs> then I named most of them. Uh, we grow uh, crimson cabernet and cabernet du ray. Yes. They're hybrids of Norton. Uh, so those are doing really well. And we planted the new Pierce's disease UC Davis Walker varieties this year: Passante Noir and Orante Noir. I'm pretty excited. Then we planted noir and black Spanish just as well. So, always trying to like plan five, ten years in advance. You know, you don't you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, I guess. <laughs> right.
0: So, talk a little bit more about those two Cabernet Doré and Cabernet Crimson Cabernet hybrids, because um, a, a lot of people probably haven't heard of those or just starting to hear about.
1: Those. Yeah, they're so they're hybrids of Norton and they bring some resistance that a Norton brings. Like Norton is I guess a native grape. Um we can get into like the genetics and the arguments about right, right. if it's actually native it, yeah. or not. But we don't need to like go <laughs> down that rabbit hole. But uh it does survive pretty well and I was looking for something that was more PHC resistant. Norton is it's more tolerant of it. I shouldn't even say resistant, but um just researching online, trying to find different grapes to grow, and I can't remember how I landed on those. And so Crimson Cabernet, um, last year was our first big vintage of it. And it 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 has a lot of cab-sab similarities with, like, a touch of Norton. I think it makes a great wine. Uh, it's definitely different to the Gros, though. And the Doré, more similar to, like, a Sauvignon Blanc, and that's like, the white right. of it and... Uh it's really good too. We have in the tank downstairs. I don't think you've tried it, have you? No, I don't really? think so. All yeah, right. Yeah. So after this we'll go okay. down and you know we'll go down and try it. And uh, I really like the wine. It's uh it's great. Um, yeah, they're both really good wines, but they definitely took a different farming approach in a way. Like they are more tolerant, but they, the problems that they have, I don't have problems with the other ones. Uh I cane prune everything. The way they're fruitful and the way they grow is so different. Like it, It's harder to just spur prune them on BSP. You can't quite do that with that variety. You have to treat them like a Norton. Sometimes if you spur prune it to two buds, the first bud isn't going to be fruitful, so you're to leave a bunch of buds. And then mm-hmm. if you do that, you're going to get spur creep. And so now I, I cane prune everything. and Every once in a while, I'll, I'll make four canes sometimes. This isn't crazy. But... It was insane. It yeah. was
3: literally insane. It was yeah. a forest. This one. Yeah, yeah, I have a
1: picture and they're like twice
3: as tall as you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's it's definitely over ten feet. I'm just like, so you have to be a giant to work here at Fireclay. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Sometimes, you
1: know, In the rain we get so much growth sometimes.
0: So how many acres total is in your vine?
1: About seven. Okay. It's a good number. Yeah, it's 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 enough. I mean my dad always wants to plant more and I'm like, nah. <laughs> we're good. yeah we're we're good
0: so talk about talk to us about some of the the wines then that you're making from these grapes and other things you're making in addition to wine all
1: right uh i'll I'll let Eric talk about the other additions to just wine. how do we go into there <laughs> Yeah, uh, first we'll start off. Um, it's really
3: fun. We started uh, collaborating when I was working over at Honeysuckle. Uh, I really missed working in a vineyard and uh, making wine, uh, especially, you know, it was nice to really incorporate uh, local honey, uh, King Cobra apiary based out of Sakspahaw. Hmm. Um, and it was because of Arthur, shout, shout, uh, yeah. shout, shout out, out to Arthur. Arthur. Shout out to Arthur. Yeah. Is Arthur. Arthur? <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw on his fantastic Instagram, like, you must check out this most beautiful winery located in the heart of Chatham County. Uh, Fireplace Cellars. And I was like, okay, one day I'll go out there. Uh, so eventually came out here, saw what was going on, talked to Eric, and we had this idea to make a Chamberson Nouveau Mead. Um, so came out, and that was, um, oh gosh, that must have been like 2018, 2019. Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty much just came out, harvested, had such a great time. Saw the quality of the fruit, was, which was just insane. And Eric's like, well, here's a case of wine and take like 100 pounds of grapes. So immediately went back to the meadery, dumped it in, and that's kind of created this amalgamation of uh, incorporating grapes into meads. Um, so, when we started working together, um, just over a year and a half ago, uh, we started a small mead program with all king cobra braviary honey, Our first one was hibiscus herbal with lemon verbena, ginger root, elderflower, um, and hibiscus, and we started canning that, doing it on draft, then we brought in a peach and green tea mead, uh, named after my cat Peaches, wow. um, so it was nice to kind of bring those flavors in and uh, Bring taps essentially to uh, fire clay. From that, every year we've made a paquette so we can drink it, and then now we've <laughs> made enough that we can't drink the full supply. And uh, we just recently released our uh, Skinny Dip Traminette Paquette uh, with two days' worth of skin contacts, all in cans, and then we have our Chamberson Paquette as well, great crush. <laughs> just something kind of like a uh, vinegar juice, in a way, of something you would drink outside whenever you need a little beverage, a little pick-me-up. Um, yeah, we're constantly just evaluating what works in the cellar and what doesn't. Uh, we have a few unmarked kegs that are like a mixed culture Traminette. Because you have a few too many, and you have a sour beer, and you're like, oh, what happens if we dump this in the keg and forget about it? Two years later, we try it, and we're like, oh, wow. This is what happens. It's we still got
1: that uh, <coughs> pet mat paquette we made one year. Pe- pe- pet <laughs> mat? Pet we, for- we forgot about it for years, and then we're just like, we needed to scourge this. And so that's what we've been doing. And we're like, "I oh, will just leave it as it is. Like, no sulfites, no nothing. Just, uh, but eventually, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but... <coughs> We're, we're disgorging it slowly but surely. It's fun.
3: Yeah, it's yeah. only a yeast plug that's like two and a half inches. So it's just, you know, it's fine.
1: I'll show you a <laughs> <the> video later because <laughs> it, it doesn't just like pop out. It takes like, it slowly <laughs> comes out. Uh, yeah, and it's wild. And then you can't, it doesn't really work that well. So you're still yeast in there. You can't get it all out. Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. a perfect disgorge. You're, you're making... Uh, when you're riddling it, you know. We don't have proper riddling racks, we didn't add like riddling adjunctives and additives. And there's a bidule that you can put in the bottle that helps you get all the yeast out. And then obviously, I just i was like, Oh, this is almost done for venting. And I put it all in the bottle. So some have a giant three inch long yeast plug, and the others like have barely have any, cool. so it's all over the place, but it's fun and it. Somehow, with not adding anything to it, like it's pretty good.
3: Yeah, for very sure. Cool. Two years on yeast contact and just very light brioche, but nothing crazy. Um, yeah, that's kind of part of the sellers that we wanted to kind of like introduce. Uh, so slowly but surely, we're just seeing what works. We have a really fantastic uh, noble grape cider that I wish we made more of. Oh um, man,
1: that's so good. It's uh we'll, we'll have to give them a taste of that too. <laughs> Did we put you we know, it's downstairs. We put it out a a draft up here. Uh-huh. Uh, but that will release soon. So all the muscadines in my parents are is the, the noble it's called like a noble muscadine and uh we we picked it all and we froze it and we're like, we're gonna do something with this and it was Eric's idea. Eric too, I guess. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh we should do the Muscadine Saturday, like, I don't know about that. Like, da, da, da. We picked it all and then my my dad's freezer went out, so I was like, "Well, today's the day we're pressing the like muscadines." And so I pressed it one day, and like it did it, and uh, I was just awesome. I was like, ah, "Next next year, just all the way." So, oh, yeah, Get awesome. ready. so good. Get ready. It's like a cider with just the aroma and a little bit of sweetness from the muscadines. Oh, okay. cool. It's, yeah, it's sounds awesome. very interesting. Yeah, it's it's chuggable. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe let's back up just a yeah, minute yeah.
0: And, and remind folks what a paquette is. Yeah, so
3: essentially we take uh, the spent skins from either a rose or a white wine pressing, um, and we rehydrate that with uh, our water. We'll sometimes add some sugar or a little bit of honey to bring up the ABV to just over seven for a little bit more stability. And then we've been messing around a little bit more with kind of skin contact to see what that does. Um, For our approach with these two piquettes, we wanted something very clean and fresh. So we wanted to just have a really good expression of each of the varietals, Traminette and Chamberson. Um, But yeah, sky's the limit. Uh, Honestly, it was Plebe who turned me on to the idea. And after talking about their insane process of, yes, there's 11 great varieties make this one Paquette, (laughs) so nobody really knows what it is. Uh, You keep going around and asking your friends, like, do you like Paquette? What would you do? And then we kind of found our own method. but, yeah, it's unfortunate that it's hard to label with TTV, but, you know, slowly but surely, it's coming yeah, out there. more
0: people do it. Mm-hmm. And I must say, we, we tried both of them earlier, so the Tremonetta is called Skinny Dip. Yes, indeed. And the Chamberson one is Great Crush. Right? Yes, indeed. And they were both, like, super flavorful, but nice and light yeah. and refreshing and just perfect for summer or... You know warm day which we have plenty
1: of those in north carolina right? yeah and you so, said clean i mean they were definitely clean. yeah they were, they were like definitely crisp. yeah it was yeah super yeah clean. it's hard to keep them clean because they're low abv right you know the acid the ph <laughs> is higher the ph is higher and acid's lower so keeping them not too funky but like some people want funky so it's a, a weird balance of it all yeah they're they're like Seemingly easy, but also seemingly like difficult.
3: We hit so many yeah. like impasses where, like, do we go this way or this way? I don't know. Like, what have yeah. other people done? Well, they haven't yet. OK, <laughs> so we'll try this way. Try um, losing. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's fun. Like We like to just joke around and have a good old time with it. And at the end of the day, we're just trying to make things that we want to drink and share. So this was nice to envision, you know, just very quaffable beverage that you don't have to like put into a fancy wine glass and consume. You're just cracking the can, having it nice and chilled, and having a good old time with it. Excellent.
2: So we didn't really talk about the wines yet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> let's go back to that.
2: Yeah.
1: The wines. All right. Uh... The things with corks. You know, <laughs> <individual> corks. <laughs> so. <laughs> <Cool> talk. <laughs> What's cool about the wines, all right, everything's cool about the wines. I am excited because I've been able to express our vineyard and my style of winemaking. I think that's coming out more and more. I haven't sprayed herbicides two years now, and I've only sprayed organic for a year now. And so I also, sometimes I don't want to add sulf, I don't, I try to get away from even adding sulfites in the beginning of my process. Um, and we're, we're pitching yeast, but we uh, Eric had a guy that came out and we're trying to find our own yeast strains out in the vineyard. Next year, I think a new, not a new fad, but some really cool science on non-sac yeast. So the non-traditional yeast you would use, they, they can only really ferment to about 3 or 4%. The idea is instead of adding sulfites at the beginning, you can use these non-sacrimonious yeast and they will start the process quicker and it allows you to not have that sulfates I try to make lower sulfite wines I try to keep oxygen away and not just use sulfites as like a backbone not saying there's anything wrong with it you know and there's not anything wrong with any you know it's uh, this is like I kind of want to make a natural wine as natural as I can maybe I would like to say low intervention wine making right, sure. like for all the wines last year you know we don't we don't capitalize the sugar at all we don't add any sugar back uh well some of our stuff we definitely had sugar back but we try not to with our like traditional wine so the wine ma- the other we have like our fun projects and we have like hey here's a traditional wine try not to do much of it and I try to make it taste like taste like from our place without adding a whole bunch of stuff to it so do as my best as I can to try to do that. So that's pretty exciting to me. That I've been learning a lot more to do that. Because it's actually not that easy. Like, there's a reason all of these products and stuff exist. Like, yeah. you're trying to also make as good as wine as you can. Oh sure. So that's really important. But you know, just my ideas of like farming and the way I want to make my wine. I want to try to make it like like that. And sometimes it doesn't always work out. And sometimes it's not the right way. Sometimes it's not going to make the best wine. Uh,
4: but you always have
1: those other t- resources like in your back pocket if you have to do that but it's so challenging in North Carolina to do exactly what I want to do so sometimes it doesn't always work out sometimes you pick your grapes and they will make an 8% wine like now like we need we need it to get above 11-12% because it just won't be stable so you know we have to use sound winemaking practices you know for sure but in the really really good years it's cool to like not have to add a lot and be like hey this is like exactly like the grape tastes like is like what we wanted to do that's pretty exciting
0: so what year do you think was the best vintage that you've seen here so far
1: uh you know here oh man 2017 was a really good year i think for everybody in north carolina it's, it's weird because every variety has a different year, right. <laughs> so it's not, you know, like one year, if it's actually extra, extra rainy, like Norton, for instance, could be better, <laughs> you know, and it's like... That's
0: why you plant the, these Yeah, varieties. so you, Yeah. That's why we have, have so a- many different
1: ones. Right. Right. Certain years, like Cab was amazing. And then Tremadette can be amazing one year and other years it's really hot and other years it's like perfect in September. And other years, like the hurricane comes, you have to pick it early. And, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, so I couldn't say I have, like, the best year, but the best, it's more about making the best decisions for that year, like, uh, we've been doing a lot of, like, sparkling wines, and, you know, hey, if, like, your grapes are really, really sound, and there's a hurricane coming, and they're at ten and a half, eleven 11%, <coughs> or, excuse me, uh, you know, making a sparkling wine could be, like, the right choice instead of trying to let them hang for two or three more weeks, and... Get some rocks you know you can just like get them off you can make a beautiful sparkling wine so we're really excited about making more ones this year
0: yeah sparkling is it seems to be growing in the state like the number of people doing it which is really cool that that's the case and yeah, some so of it cool. should be because of what you just mentioned the weather could help impact that because <laughs> so yeah you got sometimes you do have to pick early so why not and right. most people like sparkling so
1: yeah yeah good. i mean it's such a perfect i mean it's it's not it everything and it's, it's hot yeah. yeah people love the cold sparkling yeah. beverage and i, I love champagne <laughs> sparkling <wine. laughs> you know, so. uh,
3: it's funny when we get to the point where it's like should we sparkle this and sometimes we do make the decision as we were talking about before with the chardonnay where i was like this is just so good still like Understand like to incorporate a little bit of bubbles and uh, let it go through a different secondary process it, it, It'll change it, but um, it seems especially now with the consumer trends and uh, with our taps, you know people a Traminette that's a little bit bubbly and uh, Who doesn't like bubbles?
2: <laughs> so we're actually in a pretty good spot to take a quick little break but when we come back, you mentioned taps, you mentioned kegs, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the alternative methods that you have for keeping and preserving and selling your wines. So, um, yeah, and then we'll see where the conversation takes us. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica,
0: welcome back. So I think we're in the eighteen
4: hundreds, is that right? No, we finished those. Oh, oh yeah. gosh, I Moving must have been asleep on.
0: then. So we're gonna be in the nineteen hundreds. <laughs> were
4: we that boring?
0: No, oh, no, no, <laughs> never. It's gonna take us a while to get to
4: the nineteen hundreds yeah. though.
0: So. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot recorded, so a lot more information to share.
2: Yeah, yes. we've also covered a lot of time, so it's easy yeah. yeah. to mix up.
4: Yeah. Okay. All right,
0: well let's dive in.
4: All right, so let's set the stage since you know the eighteen hundreds were so long ago. Um, and we've moved on to the 1900s, right? So, the early 1900s were a time of continued colonization, lots of technological advances. You know, in the early 1900s, we all know, of course, about the Wright brothers' flight um, here in North Carolina. Um, also, the Model T was released and took over as the first affordable um, tri- car and transportation. Uh, but also in the early 1900s, we have like really conservative lifestyles and monarchies and things that are happening. Mm. Um, yeah, so I can see where this is going.
0: <laughs> the yeah. tempers, tempers, Ooh,
4: tempers temperance movement. and yeah. war. I mean, war has been universal yeah. throughout history, but it really takes the, the stage here in the 1900s. So it's actually the culmination of European militarism and some assassinations and important events that eventually leads us to, of course, World War I, which we know lasted from 1914 to 1918, and the end of this war, which we're going to dig into this time period a little bit, but the end of this war actually triggered the abdication of many monarchies and the collapse of many modern empires. Russia, Georgia, Ottoman Turkey, and Austria-Hungary all fell at the end of World War I. So, time of a lot of change. Yeah. Mm. So, let's dive in and go through some
5: stories. Um, so, we're going to start in France. We're going to be in France a lot. Oh, okay. God. Um, but specifically, France in the time of World War I. So, we're going to be in the city of Rheims in northern France. And so, this city had seen a lot of battles already, right? France was a hot spot for war to this time. So, you would think maybe they would have had a plan to defend the city. They didn't. Huh. Um, but it was founded by the Gauls during the Roman Empire, so old city. Um, and the cathedral here is where the kings of France were crowned. So it's a very important place. Um, but here we have World War I. The German troops are starting to take to the north um, in 1914. So this city starts to get worried, specifically because they're worried about their upcoming vintage, which was looking really good. <laughs> um but here we have the Germans sweeping in on September 3rd. Ooh. And by September 6th, they'd gone round and over the Mountain of Rheims to reach Epernay. Um, so this is kind of like the gateway to Paris. So they, the Germans thought they'd be there by October. So They were trying to get to Paris. But they never got to Paris in World War I. Hmm. We'll have to save that one for the sequel. A.K.A. World War II. <laughs> <laughs> um. So in the first battle of the Marne, they were squeezed back out um, and they had some reinforcements for Paris. They were squeezed out. So they were ejected from Reims on September 13th. Hmm. So if you remember, they just got there September 3rd. So they were not there long. No, 10 days. Would yeah. you
4: say they got <laughs> <laughs>
5: Um And I should have said this earlier and I didn't, but this city is where it's in the Champagne region. So This is the vintage they were wanting. Um, so they leave on September 13th, so it's looking like Champagne would be okay after all. Hmm. Um, they'd be free, they had a very brief occupation, it's fine. But looks can be deceiving. Because even though they left Rheim and the Germans were gone, they didn't move far. So they still were dug in the slopes of the mountain of Reims, Um, and this is actually where Champagne's Pinot Noir was grown. Mm. So they weren't in the city anymore, but they were still like on the outskirts where the vineyards were. The front line ran through some of the best vineyards. Trenches went through the slopes. So all the shells are going through the vines. Yet harvest was brought in. So this is harvest time, right? Um, But sadly, it came at a cost. So no one is quite sure how many adults died in the harvest since it was hard to tally because men were being killed on all sides of the war. And if you're a Vintner or not, or vineyard person, but they do know that 20 children died in the vineyards, bringing in the 1914 harvest. Mm. Um, and then same in 1915, still going on. Um, another great vintage, but still harvested under the rage of, um, the war in, in Germany. Um, So the 1914 and 1915 vintages are known as the blood vintages. And so they say the blood of France runs through them um, and very occasionally an old bottle is brought out and drunk in a solemn mood of respect Um, because these are good but sad Mm wines, right? Um, So not only did harvesting the grapes be this heroic feat um, but so was even making the wine. The Germans began bombarding Reims on September 14th, only a day after they had been forced to retreat. Hmm. Um, they continued the bombardment for 1,051 days. Wow. Um, the cathedral we talked about earlier was gutted, and not one single home escaped. Hmm. Um, the entire population, almost the entire population, had been evacuated. By the end of the war, only 100 civilians out of a pre-war population of 120,000 were left. Wow. Um, so in the first couple of years of the war, the citizens kind of went underground. They had all the cellars. They had created this elaborate system underground. So to start off, they went underground, but for 1,051 days, that would have been difficult. Mm-hmm. So they evacuated. Um they say, though, that underground, not one single bottle of champagne was broken by the shelling in the war.
0: Well, yeah. that's good news. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Um, and right, early on, when they were still using this before they had evacuated, um, this cave system was said to hold 50,000 soldiers. So, French soldiers were using it to hmm. this um, area. So. Wow, that's the story from World War One. Yeah, Sad, but the wine yeah. survived. Yeah.
4: So, the things we do for our wine. Yeah. When with trench warfare, they probably didn't move much at all, right? In that time period.
2: Trudging uh, through vines too is difficult. I mean, that would not be the way I would choose to go. But I'm not a good strategist, and <laughs> yeah. No. It wasn't my call.
4: Yeah. Well. My segue was not, is not very good, but I'm going to say it anyways. And now we're going to talk about something even sadder. This, this is a sad episode. <laughs> prohibition.
0: <Aww. laughs> Which um, you're still paying for yeah. in certain ways.
4: So prohibition, a.k.a. the 18th Amendment, um, it was known as the Volstead Act, and it established a national prohibition in the United States and outlawed the manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages from January 16, 1920 until December 5th, 1933. Yeah. So wine was not the main target of prohibition, but the whole temperance movement was more concerned with whiskey and other liquors, but wine kind of got caught up in the, in the mess here. But clearly, from our modern standpoint, we know how terrible this so-called noble experiment turned out. It was just not good. Um, and today, we still are dealing with some of these crazy state laws because of prohibition. Um, but we're going to talk about some of the more fun side effects of prohibition and maybe some glimmers of hope. Um, you know, why you could still sit at home and enjoy a glass of wine, even if that quality is debatable. <clears throat> so while we think prohibition is crazy, it actually was in the works almost from the start of modern history. So throughout history, there have been many movements for temperance, um, not even just in the United States, but in other New World countries like New Zealand, Australia, uh, there were historically movements for temperance here. Um, In the United States, the temperance movement was led by Protestants and Puritans, um, really even going back to many of the founding fathers were Puritan, so since ye old colonial times. Um, This movement gained ground in the 19th century, and their goal was fixing everything they saw that was wrong as stemming from alcohol. So, alcoholism. I think they had that one right, but uh, (laughs) some of these other things, family violence, saloon-based political corruption, um, they really felt alcohol was just the root of all evil in America. Um, So, by the time of prohibition, this anti-alcohol movement had been growing for more than 100 years, Uh, Many states and communities had passed their own dry laws during this time, but at this point, enforcement of these laws became a topic of debate. Now, quick side note here to explain that women tended to support prohibition. Um, And because of that, or maybe as a side effect of that, um, they go hand in hand, women's rights became entrenched with other issues of the day, and temperance. So these things get, went hand-in-hand, hand, women's suffrage. Um, and really, these temperance movements supported women's suffrage, and then they got support hand-in-hand, hand, so it kind of was a mm-hmm. symbiotic relationship. Makes you wonder where you would have been in that situation. I, know. I might have gone Thank for goodness it. we didn't live then. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, women... Not, I'm not going to talk in great strides here, but women tend to, tended to support this, and they went hand-in-hand hand with women's suffrage. So, like, thank you for the right to vote, but, you know, could go for some wine. <laughs> uh, but the first state to go dry was Maine in 1851. And by 1909, Prohibition had reached North Carolina. Now, we talked about World War, World War I, and by the time that started in 1914, 33 states were dry. So the real start of prohibition was way earlier. Yeah. When, oh, wow. Yeah. Than when it was codified and legalized and ratified. Um, during World War I, there was patriotic sentiment to preserve foodstuffs for the war effort rather than use them for alcohol production. And this really went hand in hand with the temperance movement that was already in effect and led to the majority support for the 18th Amendment, um, which came about in January 1920. Now, you might think that winemaking would go down during this time, but actually, turns out winemaking increased by 50 percent during this time. What? Oh, mm. why? Great question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so professional winemaking dwindled, but winemaking at home and by bootleggers increased. Mm. Yeah. So it turns out there was a loophole. Leave it to a wine drinker to figure out, but there was a loophole that allowed a person to manufacture, quote, non-intoxicating cider and fruit juices exclusively for use in his home. No, his home, not her home. Oh, that hurts. Uh, But this became a gray area, and you could crush 200 gallons of grape juice a year for your family. Oh. Yeah.
2: And if you just Mm -hmm. happen to let it sit there. yeah.
4: I mean, yeah. Oops, I forgot. (laughs) Um, But vineyards boomed, and grape prices actually went from $10 to $20 a ton, prior to prohibition, to $100 to $150 a ton.
0: Wow.
4: Yeah. So things were looking good. Um, But let's think about which grapes were doing well. Right? So uh, Riesling and Pinot Noir, for instance, they would not sell well. So people were shipping these across the country back to the East Coast to use. Um, so Riesling and Pinot Noir wouldn't sell well because they're really fragile and they have thin skins. Um, you can't really put those in a boxcar and ship them across the country and expect anything good to show up back, back east. But there were th- some thicker skinned varieties like Alicante Bouchquet, um, if you've heard of that one. but That was actually the most popular. It's a Tonturier grape, um, meaning its juice is also colored. So it could withstand that journey. Um, back on the railroads, um, and be used for, quote, home winemaking. Um, So these East Coast winemakers, home winemakers, could stretch out their production by adding water and sugar and getting more wine per pound of fruit. Um, Yeah, so they were ripping out, uh, like, mission grapes and things like that and putting in more of these at that time. Hmm. Uh, so, within a couple years, more homemade wine was being produced annually than all the commercial wineries had produced before the ban. Wow. Mm-hmm. And another caveat to that increase in winemaking at this time is that wine was still legal for religious use. So, at this time, Catholic congregations soared and Jewish synagogues sprang up. And you could get registered as a rabbi just by presenting a list of your congregation. Or your neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like, hey, <kids>. Yeah. <laughs> I need you to sign this petition. Um, also, doctors could and would prescribe liquor for certain ailments. Um, there was a guy named Paul Mason who had a medicinal champagne, and this boomed. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Virginia Dare, America's best-known wine before pro- prohibition, became Virginia Dare wine tonic and still did well. Um, also, wine bricks and kegs of juice were sold with a yeast pill attached. But there was a disclaimer quote, If you use this, it will turn into wine, which would be illegal. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolving them of any uh, responsibility here.
2: I warned everyone.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Warning may become wine. Um, Vine Glow Concentrate offered home delivery, and the delivery man would actually start the fermentation off and return 60 days later with empty bottles and your next keg of juice. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, so you didn't even have to make your own homemade wine. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Like, talk about a a small business with some get up and go. Um, but we know eventually we saw the error of our ways, and prohibition ended with the Twenty First Amendment, which repealed prohibition. Um, but it ended up it transferred authority to indiv- individual states. And then many states relegated this to the county level. So like here in North Carolina, we still have dry counties, um, which we are surrounded by. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and at the end of Prohibition in 1933, there was a lot of anticipation that with its end would come a rapid resurgence of the wine industry. But this was not the case, actually. There were several factors that prevented this. Um, so one was that during their long closure, wineries had just fallen into disrepair. Like 13 years was too long just to let it set and forget. Um, and there were a few skilled winemakers available. Also, prohibition ended during the middle of the Great Depression. So there was little demand and few resources available for rebuilding. And then people's tastes had changed during this time. Um, people got used to their poor quality homemade wine that was mm. often sweetened or fortified um, with distilled alcohol to cover up flaws and they just weren't really going for it so Sad. that's prohibition
1: in
0: a
5: nutshell yeah we're going to hop back to france i'm just going to live in france this yeah. episode <laughs> um but specifically this time we're going to go to bordeaux so at this time early 1900s the standard practice was for the wine houses or chateaus to send most of their barrels of wine that had just finished fermenting to a merchant that would then blend, bottle, distribute the wine. Um, they did keep some from themselves that they cared for, nurtured, and bottled by hand. But the the wine that was getting out to the masses was done by the merchants. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they didn't know what was happening, right? Like there was no rules, there was nothing. It's just. They're sending good wine out, and who knew what was getting in the bottle. Um, Well, we have a man, Philippe de Rothschild, who took over his family property. Chateau, Hmm. try that again. Chateau Mouton, Rothschild. Um, So, this was in 1922 that he took this over. He was 20 years old. So, can you imagine getting this whole chateau and wine? Industry to yourself as a 20-year-old.
4: I don't know. People were more of tear back then.
5: I True. <laughs> True. But he decided he wanted to change things. He already came in and was like, no. Um, so these merchants were improving the wine. You didn't see my air quotes, but there were air quotes around the improving. Um, by adding other varietals to improve the color. They would add in cheaper products to make the good products last longer and go further. Um there's even tales about adding some elderberry or blackberry juice to brighten it up a little bit. Um, I mean, the merchant's goal is to sell, sell more wine, right? Um, de Rothschild decided that the wine of Mouton must be made then. From then on, it must be bottled at the property, the chateau, um, so that the ones who prepared it were the ones who cared about it the most, and that's what people would be drinking is what he knew he had made. Um, so now this seems like... Well, duh. But at the time, this was crazy. Um, He persuaded the other four top estates in Bordeaux to join him in doing the same thing. Um, And the other four were also the other first growths of the 1855 classification. So he's getting all the top dogs on board with now bottling at the Chateau um, and only offering the wine for sale that was bottled at the Chateau. Mm -hmm. Um, So this all sounds great, right? Like, we're making strides forward. But it actually threw the Bordeaux trade into turmoil um, because then everybody started questioning all Bordeaux wine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so everything got questioned. And it took until 1971 for it to be mandatory for all the classified growths to bottle their wine at the Chateau themselves. So this is 1924 Mm -hmm. was when... Philippe de Rothschild had his first chateau bottled wine, but then it took until 1971 for it to be like um, the thing you were supposed to do. Wow, crazy! He was a trendsetter.
4: Yeah. All right. Well, now we're going to stay on the continent, but we're moving to Portugal, and specifically the home of Port in the Douro Valley in Portugal. The time is 1931. The place. Is Quinta do Naval, a beautiful, steeply terraced property high above the river valley. Right? So you can just picture it, right? (coughs) Um, Here, there are some vines, six acres to be exact, that were never killed by phylloxera.
0: Hmm.
4: Yeah. This tiny patch did have to be replanted and was replanted with Toriga Nacional vines in 1925. And the vines were on their own rootstocks, ungrafted. Um, they've given about half the crop um, on the rest of the state, but the crop here is like these tiny, super sweet, lovely grapes. And all right, so right, it's 1931. These vines are only about six years old. if We can do math. Um, but we have our crop to make port. Now, in 1931, the Great Depression is raging. It's got the world in its grips. Right? It's not just the United States. It's it's worldwide at this point. Um, business is not so good for port, and people decided that whatever money they had was certainly not going to port. But whispers start going around about how good this vintage was, and but everybody turned their backs on it, not wanting to take it, a chance to ship it. But there was one guy, a single English English merchant, who took the risk. His name was Butler, and he thought that this was the greatest vintage ever made. And he bought all of it wow oh. every single one.
5: Yeah. yes and probably didn't make any money and had to sell it for very cheap but mm. he
4: believed in it yeah <laughs> he took a chance mm. and just had a lot of time
5: now you can look it up now and see 1931 bottles of this port
4: for sale yeah. mm. granted they're not cheap anymore
0: yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so the beginning of the 1900s had a lot We've got war. We've got prohibition. Got it all.
5: Yeah. We only made it
4: to 1931. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, just the highlights. Um, But, you know, so we can end with some food pairings. Um, So we talked about champagne, and we talk about this one a lot. So we're trying to, like, dig deep about what different food pairings we might try here. Um, And we've talked about the high-low pairings with just some, you know, like snack food yeah. um, but palm uh, with so some fancy little french fries um, with truffle oil or just like a salt and pepper or a rosemary garlic mm. situation yeah. could be really oh, good yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: specifically sitting outside at a restaurant mm-hmm. with your glass of champagne and your appetizer
4: palm frites mm-hmm. while you're waiting on the rest of your meal yeah, yeah. um so our big takeaway from prohibition was just the growth and renaissance of basement wine and just these (laughs) at-home winemakers. So how would you make the most of subpar wine? Um, And so some of the ideas we bandied about here, you could cook with it.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. Always an option here. Um, Something we have heard about and tried before is if you have a, not so great wine. You can kind of bulk it up and do your own blending at home with some port or something fortified to hmm. just give a little extra kick in the pants. Go back like the olden days, yeah. merchants and ads. Yeah. Making yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your own blends. Yeah. Elderberry. Distilled alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a wine mouth favorite is just to turn it into sangria and make it the backbone of a pretty cocktail. Hmm situation
2: we do like turning it into vinegar too we've done mm. that before and it just that's good for dressing yeah. yeah yeah
4: there you go um we also talked about bordeaux because rothschild remember that guy um its location is left bank so that red blend is going to be predominantly cabernet sauvignon so with that you know grilled beef something with mushrooms little roast of baby lambs yeah. yeah or maybe just lamb <laughs> Not specifically Not the baby, baby dolls. dolls. <laughs> um, yeah, longtime listeners will understand that reference. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, port, um, which I truly struggle to pair with in real life because I don't often reach for a bottle of port to open. Um, but with this, you could do some different cheeses, um, even like a pork slider, you know. We're in barbecue country but maybe something like that might stand against support. Hmm. if you're gonna go the dessert route then you'd want to be careful about hiring it but it could certainly stand against a fruit pie of some sort perhaps and then maybe chocolate brownies but like it gotta be the right the right That's kind of yeah yeah I could see that yeah or maybe just by itself but yeah anything else to add I don't know I'm getting hungry as <laughs> <almost> always. <laughs> Where are our palm frites? I know. <laughs>
2: They're waiting for us on the, the bistro.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, excellent. Well, this has been very enlightening. We're very happy to be in the 1900s and yeah. we're looking forward to the next one. Thank Enjoy. you. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website. WineMouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram, at WineMouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we're back with Eric and Eric. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about where we left off. We had mentioned the tap system, we mentioned kegs, and before, before we started recording, you mentioned how using kegs is kind of a cool, innovative thing that you're doing, and it's
3: a different approach to it. So let's talk a little bit
2: about some
3: of that. Yeah, um, so uh, I, every winery that I've worked at, we've used kegs, and it's something that I think the barrier to entry is just a little bit of knowledge, but then you can go to your local brewery and talk to the brewer about kegs, and they're just going to tell you everything. Um, what we found that works real well in our <coughs> cellar is being able to maintain and uh, move the wine in a certain direction that we want. So if we're low on a tank and we have enough kegs, especially if we need top barrels, we're able to um, put the wine in kegs and make sure it's stable. So essentially we'll purge with CO2 uh, about three times, so it's completely free of oxygen. And then literally with any pump that you have in the winery, you can pump into um, the keg or even gravity fill if the wine is high enough. Uh, what we found works well for us is small-scale kind of uh, carbonation as well. So we are able to take a wine that we want to see if it's going to be good sparkling, and we'll do some measurements. We'll see the pH, if we have any residual sugar, and we'll tune it to certain carbonation levels to understand where that's going to go. That could only get us to kind of right around beer level, um, anywhere between vino verde-esque kind of light spritz to kind of like a higher carbonation, like a Saison in uh, a beer style, but uh, what we found is there's so many different avenues that we can do with it. We had one mysterious mead keg that we made into a pet net, and it was literally right at uh, almost terminal, around 1.003 specific gravity. You just open the valve, dump it straight into the keg, close it, forget about it. Uh, it was in the corner of our cellar for nine months, and then Eric was like, hey man, I need this keg. And I was like, alright, I'll figure it out. Um, so it was funny, you just threw it in the fridge, all that yeast kind of dropped out, and within nine months, uh, we were able to get that nice toasty brioche character and make a, uh, a natural mead with no sulfites. Uh, it was pitched with uh, a commercial yeast, Vin13. Uh, but we were able to Counter pressure, fill it into bottles. So we were able to take the approach of experimentation at small batch with kegs. And then commercial wise, we do notice, especially out in the wholesale market, <laughs> uh, a lot of breweries are like, hey, I'll buy a keg off of you. And mm-hmm. you're like, so you want to buy five gallons from me? And it might be this price. And they're like, awesome. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Huh. Uh, it, it makes sense for us, personally, just because we don't have to worry about the packaging, the labels, and everything like that. We could just go straight into kegs. It's an easy day. And then with your tap system pushing CO2 or nitrogen, just depending on what their intention is with the wine, that's the only other consideration that we'll have. Um, push with nitrogen, it's uh, going to maintain still. If you push with CO2 over time, mm-hmm. it will actually carbonate to that level that it's being pushed at. Um, But then, hey, you made your own sparkling wine. So uh, there's a few different options. Uh, Argon is a really good uh, noble gas that you can also use as well to push out of. But as what we kind of see here, we can save on bottling 20 cases and throw them into uh, half barrels and six And that'll be completely served here on tap, fresh as it can be. And then you have your to-go package as a cork. Uh, and bottle uh, but yeah, it's one conversation that we've been having is trying to understand how much will the wine change over time but from our trials and just ease of use we can clean the kegs in-house we can fill them and uh, Especially if you have a local brewery and you have 20 kegs They'll just let you come wash them real quick and works out pretty well uh, But we do kind of see this as something more of a on-premise situation, uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully with the possibility of wholesale and uh, with bars and uh, different other retailers, uh, they're more inclined to buy a keg just because the cost per ounce makes so much more sense, and we're saving at least 30% just due to the packaging reduction that we're doing. It's, okay.
0: it's a little bit more sustainable, too, than yeah, just the glass buy. Buy. Yeah. I
3: Yeah, I think we're still behind a, a few Hopefully within the next five years, you're going to start seeing a lot more wine bars with kegs. Yeah. Um, but I think we also need to be open as an industry and talk about it. Um, it, it was very, I was very apprehensive getting into it, and then uh, now we can <laughs> clean them pretty easy. Yeah. yeah,
1: I I definitely agree with all that's great, and it's you just have to be slightly more careful when you put it in there, or like a can, you get more reduction, and that's where kind of like this. Lower or sulfite sort of level, like you might need to do that in a keg. If you had like a bunch of sulfites, like it doesn't breathe, it's not going to ever go away. So it's something to think about, and that's why I've been kind of going down the path, like, oh, can, can I use or you know different products for a lower sulfite? If I add less in the game, you know, it's going to contribute less overall. Plus, if I create the stable product in a keg, not only is it like obviously more economical and all that stuff, but you know when we we're opening those bottles of wine like oh, i have to check the date when did i open this so if, like even some of our reds if you open it three days ago it's like not quite the same and you give it to a brewery and they're closed monday and tuesday and they open one sunday and now it's like thursday and that's just like an entire bottle like God wasted you know and for a small business like you know just like throwing out money and then and then they're like ah, oh, well we're just gonna give you know and then they open up and try my wine and it's just like ah oh, like this isn't that great, you know, it was like, well, it's open, like, four or five days, like, so now <laughs> out of a keg, it's, I hate to compare it to, like, a <laughs> giant box of wine, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. it yeah. but it's in, like, a nice vessel, and all yeah. these breweries, they all have the setup and ease to just use them, so it's <coughs> It's pretty awesome, and it's super fast to, like, serve it out of the tap, and it's not opening that bottle and. Like clean that glass, that's so huge. And it's
3: 66 glasses per keg, and that's a five gallon keg. You just <laughs> save so much there. Um, yeah, I wonder what the future holds and if other wineries are interested in that. I think we just need to honestly have a good conversation between, you know, this is how you would approach kegging down a red wine versus a white wine, a rose. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, in terms of reduction and trying to do our part, you know, kegs would. You can, and it's a good entry point to the to the local brewery, too, right, or to the bars, because
2: yeah. they already have the equipment to do that. They're not having to find shelf space for bottles. They're not having to deal with
1: the glass. It's just, like, easy in, easy out. So. Yeah. I think people are probably more inclined to try a wine that's on tap. I and mean, it's like, oh, you can just have, like, a quick sip. There's not this whole Open the bottle. I'm like, oh, you don't like it. And, yep. Yeah, so it's, and it's, like, if it's on tap and it's on your tap menu, people are even more, like, when you go to like a bottle shop and your wine's like far off in the, like the dark corner, and they can't try it, they're gonna be a lot less inclined to buy it. Especially, you know, slowly North Carolina has really been making a really good name, and we're making so we're making such really good wine, North Carolina now. But maybe it's not always been the case. But uh, you know, more and more people are learning about it. It's definitely intimidating to buy a, like a bottle from here on the shelf. You have no idea what it's about. <laughs> so
0: maybe let's switch gears a little bit and talk about when folks come to visit fireclay what can they expect to, to see and do and, and that sort
1: of thing when uh let's see so the winery is pretty much in the middle of the vineyard so if you sit on the deck you come outside there's the vines you drive down the vines they're all there that's cool to see i think it's cool to see as a person that loves to work in the vineyard like I mean, it's all about the vineyard in my eyes uh Uh, we have tastings, we have different meads, different sparkling products on tap. We have, I think we have seven, eight different kinds of wines. Mm -hmm. We have three different kinds of meads on tap right now. We have three different kinds of meads, a couple and then any cellar
3: experiment that we have will usually kind of creep up here and see what people are kind of feeling and get some engagement Mm -hmm. with that.
1: Um, We do some food trucks, we do some light music. Sort of like a typical winery I guess it's pretty it's like very small family run winery so it's you know my mom's probably working in the bar so you know <laughs> it's, it's almost like our second home so it's like our home so when you come here you know treat us like family we'll treat you like family you know like we love wine we love sharing wine so we want people who love to like try different wines and some people like to go out on the picnic tables and hang out all afternoon, or some people want to try wine and Yeah, that's yeah, It's a very homey
3: feeling. I mean, you're literally meeting the owners and the vineyards and the winemakers. I'm one of two paid employees here. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, the family is something that it, that changed my perspective of what a vineyard can be in a winery it was just you felt at home. First time I met Andre, Eric's dad. We sat down for two hours, just talking wine, getting to know each other, and it was just a calm, casual uh, Thursday evening, kind of like this or Friday. Um, and then from here, you kind of just invite more. It's more of that intentional uh, little gem in Chatham County. I mean, we are definitely boutique, under a thousand cases a year, and maybe making like five hundred gallons of mead, being hopeful. Um, but with that really comes you know, sharing. Everyone eventually gets to know each other. Um, just kind of any Cheers bar is more of an open vineyard and <laughs> a little home here in uh, Chatham County.
0: Very cool.
2: Now you mentioned you love wine. <laughs> and one of the things that we talked about on the break was your favorite wines. But you said yours is gonna be different, yours is gonna be different. So what's been your favorite
3: wine?
1: <laughs> Let's see, I mean this could go, all over the place. Uh, my favorite wine, there's been, all right, yeah, there's obviously been so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna say with North Carolina wine, cause you know, this is North Carolina wine. But man, uh, the Alvarino from Sanctuary is still <laughs> such a good wine to yeah. me. Uh, there's been, uh, yeah, that's a really favorite one. Uh, man, there's What about just, of your own? Of my own, okay, you wanna go with my own? Uh, <laughs>
3: Got to suit your own horn. Yeah. I would
1: say the Chardonnay in the tank that we have is probably one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, it's such a mood-dependent thing that's a problem. Yeah. Like, the Fireside, <laughs> the Cap Cronk and that one, that's my go-to right for sure. Uh, we always joke because you love Chamberson, <laughs> and I'm such a Chamberson <laughs> hater, but I hate Chamberson all the way until it's like aged really well in the bottle. I'm like, all right, this is actually like pretty good now. And, uh, when you try it out of the tank, it just like, alright, like I like some Chamberson. But sometimes Chamberson is just like so Chamberson-y to me. Yeah. It's like, ah, but some people love Chamberson. So that's like... But sometimes I'm in the mood for it. Uh, it's it's in a blue moon. I think, <laughs> I think the Chardonnay on <laughs> the tank is my favorite wine. Uh, when we first were fermenting it, it smelled like bananas. It was wild. It, it was smelled literally bananas. It was just so <laughs> fresh bananas and... That's one of the wines I was trying to do, like, as low minimal sulfites as possible. And I, like, kind of took a risk. Like, what can we do? Like, what do we do? What happens if we don't want to add sulfites in the beginning? Uh, not that any of that's bad. It's just sort of what can I do to do that? Can I put it in kegs? I want to make sure there's no reduction issues. Like, I was practicing a lot for some of the canning products because you, you can't have too many sulfites in the can especially with, for some reason with wine and high sulfites in a can and the non-ability to breathe creates a reduction environment. So it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to try to practice on all my wines. Like, the us see where we can go. I also want to make sparkling wines. So you want to keep your SO2 levels down for that as well. So it's like, well, i got to make sure this yeast can referment a wine that's already 11%. So you got to be careful. So I was just trying to use better winemaking techniques to create a wine that I have more opportunities to with five months down the road so that was but uh yeah the Chardonnay was my favorite uh Chamberson
3: uh I love some Chamberson that was hesitation you didn't hesitate oh no definitely (laughs) it it, uh coming out here and then heart like the first harvest that we did together uh was Chamberson and it was late harvest and it was the most beautiful berries um the wine that changed my perception of chamberson was actually uh, Carolina Heritage their uh, chamberson back in like twenty fifteen. It was so affordable, it was like fourteen dollars off of the shelf, completely organic. I've never tasted chamberson before and caught that bug. I will say our traminette is something that like is truly such a beautiful expression. I mean, one best uh, Traminette at NC Fine Wines this year, which was fantastic to hear. Um, I think that really describes our vineyard so well. But yeah, depending on the day, uh, the Chardonnay is fantastic. The Red Blend is great. Um, just it shows so differently. But you know, next week it will
1: probably still be something. <laughs> <laughs> the the Traminet is super versatile. Like you can make a you can make a beautiful sparkling wine. You can make it dry. You can make it off dry. It ages well. I like, you know, started my library wine collection, so I have some twenty nineteen. All right, yes. down yeah, there, yeah. yeah, and so it's like interesting, and uh, and I love how it changes, like in the tank too. When we first made it, <laughs> it it's, smells it's, like
3: Mike's Hard Lemonade, and then out of nowhere, you're <laughs> like, oh, this is Chardonnay. Oh. Yeah, it's so wild, <laughs> and so I just kind of like
1: let stuff happen, and I'm like, all right, let's see what this goes. and stuff. Different kind of like style of doing things, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I like tremonet's fun too. And it, and it grows so well. Uh, every year it's healthy and it's so disease resistant. Uh, it grows a little wild. I've, I've managed to wrangle it in a little bit by, I put, I call it the, this is a growing system called the Smart Dyson where you kind of grow it up and down as well because it's not a super upright marine variety. But now I, I call it the Lazy Dyson. <laughs> so whatever whatever grows down, I like, put down whenever goes up goes up and usually I cane fruit it so like 20-30% of the shoots go down and some go up and so it, it like works out really well and also like go crazy you know it, it creates a more airy environment so it drives cool. out faster so yeah the lazy Dyson <laughs> the lazy Dyson captain yeah bad, bad.
0: <laughs> so what are you most looking forward to in the future though is there something in particular, maybe more sparkling wine or yeah, piquettes or <laughs> more mead
1: or? Like we could probably both answer that. It's probably sparkling wine. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Paquettes are cool. I, I like doing piquettes. You're definitely going to do piquettes every single year. I think all winers should dabble in them. There's little risk. Yeah. Like, it's fine. If you have the tank space, do a piquette yeah. for sure. I think everyone should do that. Create this lower alcohol wine and see, <laughs> see what happens out of it. I mean, it's not free wine, but it's like second use skins. Like I'm just composting if I yeah. don't use them. Yeah, so. right. You've already made your wine. You're yeah, right. I think. Yeah, everyone should. I mean, we brought it to the the conference, and we we're trying to get as many people like uh, jazz about it. Like, yeah. try to make a pet. Like, it's pretty cool. It's like a different product. It's it's a cheaper product to make, and it's a low alcohol like product. And yeah, maybe maybe we'll have to do a talk on something. I don't know if we're the experts, but it's uh,
3: It's been fun Uh, to bring just a lot of diversity into the tap list has been really fun for me, but it's nice to have matching energy where coming out here, the wine was already established, the vineyard was already established. So then now to push the boundaries a little bit more of like, how can we cross influence from other fermentations? and other uh, businesses around us. It's really nice to just have that going. Uh, the natural carbonation that happens, whether it's a pet net or um, secondary fermentation like a champagne has, you know, we, are, we talk about bubbles, and we're like, it's just better. It just is. So it's fun how things are kind of going back in time. Uh, we can kind of maintain our certain like, uh, viewpoint with it. But I think what I'm really personally excited about is, other than the sparkling, is just the diversity of kind of what's always coming out, Um, especially to experiment with uh, these new varieties and see what we can do with some different blends and have a little bit more tools in the toolbox. Um, That's going to be really fun to see what really works well and how those different grapes can add to a certain blend that we just need something to help fix
1: it. we definitely went wild with sparkling wines this year. Yeah. We have little experience with it, and we just, we're like, nope, we just sent it. Yeah. All the rosé went sparkling, we did Tremendette sparkling. We're, do, we're doing a sparkling cider, like a traditional method cider. Traditional we, just, we just went hard yeah. on it this yeah. year, yeah. like we're it's just awesome. going all the way. It's like, everything's sparkling, because we just like, sparkle wine, we are like, ah, this is better, like, <laughs> So, yeah, you'll probably see us in a couple of weeks of just like, why did we do this? Know, <laughs> like, the stack of Rosé, I am just like, how am I going to disgorge all this? Like, oh no. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that really helped us was uh, uh, the encapsulated yeast. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. so that really, uh, this we don't have the space to riddle. Right. So that was really like when we were doing all the pet nets we For like, there's no way we can get all this yeast out. It just won't clear unless you, like, really riddle it. And now with, I think, casually yeast, it's like, wow. Like, we Thank can you. actually make sparkling wine now and not have to have a giant facility right. and riddle wine and, uh, you know.
3: Yeah, and you can really piece it together, which is nice. We literally have a styrofoam cooler that we pour a bunch of Everclear dry ice, and that's our negative 20 kind of (laughs) uh, neck freezer. Uh, There's definitely fancier things that we hope to get to one day. Uh, But, yeah, we were able to find a way that it it, it works. And then now, especially with a little bit of dosage or, you know, as the expression kind of goes, you know, sometimes it's just best to leave it be uh, the... Chamberson Rosé. It's tasting really good. Uh, Just a hint of a dosage, nothing much to cover up anything. Like it is, it's just fruity. It's Chamberson-y. but
1: you may be talking to the wrong guy. (laughs) 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 it has a good cherry, strawberry like aroma to it. No, I'm really happy with the Rosé. And sometimes I'm not, but like sometimes the Chamberson Rosé just takes a while to age. Seems like it's so. City. And then it really turns like beautiful strawberry, and it really like ages, and then I'm like, oh, I really like this, and then it's gone. I'm, like ah.
0: Yeah, the twenty twenty that's on the the list right now, it's it's kind of in that spot.
1: Yeah, and, and you know I, I hated on it for like a year, and then like uh, my mom was like, people are really liking this rosé right now. And I was like, what? And I was like, ah, all right, And I tried it. I was like, ah, how did how did it get good? Like, what happened? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> like finally it. You know, but maybe that's, you know, theme, you know, uh, you say give me a hard time because I, like, would be so cautious about, like, oxygen. So a lot of, like, you know, some reduction. Now I wouldn't say reduction issues, but, like, it just takes forever for the wines to breathe. And when I, like, bottle it so carefully, transfer it so carefully, it's, like, no oxygen, no oxygen ever. Like, finally, like, years in the bottle. Like, now it's where I wanted it, you know. But then it's always sold out, so it's just, like, it never has a chance to get where it wants so I did the library It's like, like the Oakshire now there's one year it was really really good but it was like one case left and I was like no but now is the time for people to drink it not a year ago, like, <laughs> now it's ready you know? but you can't do that you just you know you gotta have some wines on the menu to <laughs> absolutely
0: so, so tell folks uh, <clears throat> is there anything else that you want folks to know about Fireclay Cellars and then maybe tell folks how to find you both physically and virtually
1: well, they can definitely find us on, we do we do Facebook and Instagram, uh, you know, it's Fireclay Sellers, and then we have a website, you can Google us and all that stuff. Uh, that's how you can find us. And we're in Chatham County, we're 40 minutes outside the triangle maybe, so Greensboro, Durham, Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Raleigh. and then when you come out here, there's, there's tons of cool stuff to do in Pittsburgh as well. There's like Starlight Mead. There's a bunch of breweries. Sorry if I'm missing, not naming anybody, but all those places in the plant. There's all kinds of you know the DFC there. There's there's the cider. There's Thursday like, school. There's yes. havoc, just, havoc came in. just came in. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to drink yeah. around here. So. so you can do like a tour. You don't you know. I say you don't have to just come out here. You know you can <laughs> right. come out here, but like there's other stuff to do around. You can make a tour of it. And, you know, and then obviously there's a zoo. The Celebrity Dairy, we sell like local goat cheese here. Um, there's some like hiking and other stuff. And the latest thing I actually put on the website was biking. So uh, there's some really good road biking around here. Oh, cool. Um, right from the winery. More and more people have been doing it. Some people biked from Carrier here one time, which is crazy, Whew. but don't do that. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you want to, you can, it's great. But I mean, little car, there's very little cars, it's good heels. Beautiful farmlands, I think, can't remember, there's another, like, dairy farm mm-hmm. thing over there, they're like a inn or something, and basically there's, like, tons of good routes, I even put a Strava and a GPX file oh, on the cool. website, okay, so you cool. do one little 12-mile route, or there's endless possibilities, I've ridden my bike from here to Pittsburgh and grabbed a beer and, and came back, so, I guess that's my plan. Hall uh, is only 20 minutes away
3: uh, so Hot River farmhouse sales left big butchery the eddie Hall uh, general store uh, it's fun that we're so we're so close to everything but so far away right um, and it's nice uh, honestly would invite anyone listening to come out and enjoy glass and probably see Eric working in the vineyard and I'll be in the air conditioning in the cellar <laughs> <Smart>. <laughs> Union Grove uh, they're kind of starting where
1: yeah. Maple View Dairy was, uh, and they have all the new. Uh, well, not they don't have them, but I mean they do. But I don't know if you. And that's go on like a completely different table. But the cool new seedless muscadine varieties yeah. Yeah. are coming out, and those are pretty cool. And they keep developing them more and more. There's some they're developed in North Carolina by somebody, and also like University like Arkansas, I think, is developing a bunch of varieties. So. That's pretty cool. Uh, I haven't tried them, but I'm very excited to try them. I think that's really awesome. Like, I would definitely plant them. It would be cool if people came here and they could eat some, like, grapes. Like, Yeah. You know, um,
0: awesome. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this area and lots to do. And one thing we haven't really mentioned is you're at kind of the, the bottom end of the Hall River ABA. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so in Hall River ABA, I think, it was the second ABA in North Carolina. Yeah, after the Aiken Valley. So.
1: There's Grove Winery, but it's hard because There's they're kind of far away, away. They're kind of at so. the north end. Oh, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Burlington. you got yeah. so to They're Greensboro. pretty far, so we usually <laughs> kind of mention the Pittsburgh as much yeah. more local kind of thing. Yeah, for sure.
0: For sure. Well, we highly recommend everyone come out and visit. And Easy access right off of US 64, kind of between Pittsburgh and Siler City. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's a good, good place to come and visit all around this area
1: and particularly coming to Parkway yeah well we appreciate both of you coming out and uh shout out to Arthur <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Arthur yeah, yeah where's he at <laughs>
3: no, yeah. I, I will say um it, this is a full circle moment I always wanted to be talk to you all so I never thought we'd be on a podcast but
1: uh, well thanks for you.
0: thanks for indulging us and having a conversation we
3: most
1: appreciate
0: it this is really awesome.
1: yeah Thank you.
2: That's it for this episode of Cork Talk.
0: Thanks again to Eric and Eric. As you can see, they have a pa- passion for what they do, and they make it fun for everyone.
2: If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve.
0: And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! A cork talk is a free run LLC production.
2: This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina
4: Wine and Grape Council.